Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet Neurology. It's September 2022 and I'm Tessa This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Jerry Siegel from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, Los Angeles. Professor Siegel's review on the evolutionary origins of sleep function can be found online at thelancet.com as part of a series on sleep. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and for sharing your fascinating research with us. In your review, you mentioned work done in hunter-gatherer populations, many of which you have been involved with. Please can you tell us about this research? Why are these particular tribal groups so important? Well, I guess the starting point is that sleep disorders and insomnia in particular are very common in what we call modern societies. Somewhere between 10 and 30 percent of the population complain of insomnia, and I'm sure almost everyone has experienced it at some times. And so there are a lot of ideas on how to get better sleep and what natural sleep is. There's the idea that you're supposed to nap during the day, uh, and, and that uh, people shouldn't start, try to stay awake. They should have a break in the middle of the day. And there's this idea uh, that there's something called segmented sleep, which is that you sleep for a while, and then you get up in the middle of the night, and then you go back to sleep. And so all of these are proposed as, as natural sleep and as, uh, to some extent, remedies for insomnia. But we don't really know what natural sleep is. All these studies are done in a very artificial environment, you know, done at a constant temperature. And, and indeed, we live at a constant temperature and we're in control of the light cycle. Uh, so that's not the way it is in the natural world. There is some work in chimpanzees showing that they go to sleep when it gets dark and they wake up when it gets light. So uh, another idea is that's that's what we should be doing. We should be going to sleep when it gets dark and waking up when it gets light and averaging maybe 11 or 12 hours of sleep a night. But almost never, no one does that. And so it occurred to me because I was working on animal sleep and various species, which I guess we'll talk about later, that what we really should be doing is trying to study human sleep under the conditions in which humans evolved. And so I was doing work. I have a colleague in South Africa, and we were discussing this, and we tried to identify groups that would be suitable for this kind of study in Africa. And we identified two groups in Africa and a third group in Bolivia, because I knew anything we found in one group could be idiosyncratic for that one group and, and, and wouldn't indicate anything about what natural sleep is like. And so what we found is that all three groups we examined had similar sleep, but it wasn't what some people imagine. They never, almost never go to sleep when it gets dark. On average, the three hunter-gatherer groups all are going to sleep about three hours after sunset. But they do wake up around sunrise, and, and they do that with some regularity. Uh, and, and this actually fits with clinical advice, which is, you know, has this been uh, worked out by sort of trial and error, that you don't tell people when they should go to sleep, you tell them when they should wake up, and they should do it at the same time every day. And that is what hunter-gatherers do. Uh, but when you figure out how long they're sleeping, it's not 
11 hours or 10 hours or 9 hours or even 8 hours. It's about 7 hours. So they actually sleep about as much as we do, but maybe a little lower than most studies in humans. So it's not like we're sleep deprived. It's not like we're supposed to be getting more and more sleep. And the human epidemiology actually agrees with that. So looking at the hunter-gatherer sleep and then going to the human epidemiological studies, there have been many very large studies, one in particular by this guy Dan Kripke, uh, studied over a million people. Uh, it was a prospective study. They looked at sleep duration, and then they checked back five to six years later to, to look at who had died as a function of sleep deprivation, as, as a function of sleep duration, not deprivation. And what they found was that seven hours was about the optimal amount of sleep. And now there have been several other studies, one in Taiwan, uh, you know, others in Europe, that have come to the same conclusion that about seven hours is optimal for lifespan. But one really surprising thing is that that getting more than seven hours predicts a shorter lifespan than getting less than seven hours. So like most physiological variables, more is not necessarily better. You know, you don't, if your blood pressure is too high, you don't want to make it too low. And there's, there seems to be an optimal amount of sleep around seven hours. Plus, only about 10% of hunter-gatherer days is there any napping. So it's not, it's not a regular feature of hunter-gatherer sleep and hence of what we would guess is our ancestors' sleep. Also, they don't get up in the middle of the night. And this is another idea that's been very popular, uh, this idea of segmented sleep. But it doesn't really occur in the hunter-gatherers. It does occur sometimes, just as it does occur sometimes in the United States or in Europe, but, but it's not a regular feature of sleep. And we shouldn't think of it as, you know, to the extent that we're trying to get a natural sleep, that's not, that's not it. We're not supposed to be regularly getting up in the middle of the night, although, you know, some people get up in the middle of the night, and that's fine if, if, if they experience that as being okay and uh, d- don't have any problems with that. But it's not something you should strive towards, and you also shouldn't necessarily strive towards getting more sleep. More sleep is not necessarily better, although we there's no particular evidence that people who sleep a long time would benefit from shortening sleep. We don't know about that issue. But what we do know is that this idea that the longer you sleep, the healthier you are, is, is not correct, just based on the epidemiological data. Also, the, 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 the hunter-gatherers, it's important to appreciate, uh, are quite healthy. Because they don't have vaccinations or didn't in the past, there's a lot of child mortality among hunter-gatherers. And if you factor it in, that you say, oh, well, their average lifespan is only 45 years. But in fact, anyone who reaches adulthood has about the same lifespan that we have in you know, so-called Western societies or uh, European uh, or Asian societies. So, so the, the, the lifespan is optimal at around seven, seven hours. And the, uh, the hunter-gatherers, in fact, have been studied in some detail by the group we collaborated with in Bolivia. And they find that hypertension is almost non-existent in hunter-gatherers, the lowest rate of hypertension of any group that's ever been studied. 
And similarly, they, they don't tend to have prostate enlargement, which is cop, uh, common among males in, in uh, you know, modern societies, modern in quotes. In other ways, they're quite healthy. And, it, you know, it's not like these poor people are dying uh, early because they're not getting enough sleep. Those that reach adulthood are, in general, healthier than those in our society, even though they don't have access to modern medical care. I mean, I'm not saying that they have no ailments. They, they die of cancer and heart disease uh, the way they do in our society, but they, they are overall healthier than we are. Right. And I, well, I think since you're bringing that up now, I mean, th- that is a problem. I don't think people should sleep deprive themselves. I think they should go to sleep and wake up when they wake up and not be all worried about it. But the idea that you need, that the longer you sleep, the healthier you are going to be is uh, something that uh, drug companies love because they have ways of making you sleep more. Uh, but in fact, there is no evidence that taking sleeping pills produces a benefit in lifespan, quite the reverse. Chronic use of sleeping pills is associated with shorter lifespan. I don't know of any uh, publication that documents a health benefit for, uh, for taking sleeping pills. Now, it may reduce insomnia, and insomnia is a problem. And I think our hunter-gatherer studies suggest that part of the problem may be due to the, the fact that we're isolated from the natural rhythms of light and temperature. Uh, you know, I mean, I live in Southern California. It's going to be over 100 degrees today. People wouldn't live here if you didn't have air conditioning. So uh, the, the result is, in many, uh, most uh, societies in the United States, Europe, and Asia, uh, we're living in a temperature-controlled environment. And that may rob us of some of the clue, cues that modulate our temperature. But of course, we wouldn't be living in some of these places. Uh, but perhaps we should work some of this temperature rhythm in, into our uh, created environment. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's the subject for future experimentation. But we, what we know is the, the rate of ins- reported insomnia in hunter-gatherer populations is, is less than 2% versus 10 to 30% in, in, you know, modern populations. You discuss sleep research conducted in animals, which gives us a fascinating insight into how other species sleep and the functions of sleep. Can you tell us about your experiences with this research? Are there any notable highlights or, or challenges? Well, I was asked to review this work some years ago, and, uh, uh, you know, I've done some more for this current publication. Um, look, looking at uh, the sleep in animals, sleep amounts in animals uh, across, across the mammalian order uh, to see uh, what, what accounts for uh, variation in sleep. So, summarizing, some animals sleep as little as two hours a day and other animals sleep as much as 20 hours a day. And what is that related to? And how do humans fit in? And the, the, the first conclusion is that humans are not unusual in any way, which again goes against the idea that uh, sleep has something to do with learning or cognition. Uh, human sleep amounts are not 
not particularly high, not particularly low. And, uh, you know, we'll probably get into that within the next question in terms of REM sleep. But, but if you look at all, at all mammals that have been studied, uh, what you have is the, the, the biggest determinant of sleep time is diet, not brain size or brain body weight ratio. Uh, uh, carnivores sleep the most, omnivores sleep less, and herbivores sleep the least. And uh, you can actually uh, plot in herbivores, there's a, a very clear relationship between how big the animal is and how little they sleep. And so the, the, the champion little sleeper is, is the elephant. And we did this study just, just a couple of years ago. What we found is elephants sleep just two hours a day in the wild. Uh, in zoos, they sleep four hours a day. And I, I would suggest that that's because they have nothing more to do. You know, they get a bale of hay thrown in the enclosure at the beginning of the day, and then they, they just sleep. And in fact, elephants in the wild live longer than elephants in zoos. I mean, there are a lot of uh, possible explanations for this, but certainly uh, short sleep is not shortening their lifespan. And elephants, uh, you know, have a very complex social structure. Uh, they can be compared to primates in terms of, of their social structure and their learning ability. And, and, and also, they, they live for a long time. They, they have one of the longest lifespans of uh, any mammalian species, they can live to 60 or 70. Um, so if you look at all of these animals, what, what you see is that humans actually fit in with the herbivores a lot better than they fit in with the carnivores or the omnivores. If you compare human sleep and, and, uh, to carnivore sleep, we would have the lowest of the 100 or so species that have been examined. And similarly, if you compare human sleep to omnivore sleep, there's, o- I, there's only one animal that has less sleep, and it, it, it's a kind of cat. Uh, but uh, if you compare humans to herbivores, we fit in perfectly on, on the curve of uh, body weight and sleep time. And that, that uh, relationship is presumably... Uh, d- determined by what you need to eat. So an elephant, which has, of course, a huge body mass, spends all of its daylight hours eating and some of its night hours. They're, they're, uh, they're awake as much as 22 hours a day. Sometimes, in our experience, in our recent study, uh, sometimes they just skip a day sleeping. They have their own little all-nighters. So, so um, you know, so... This suggests, and of course this doesn't prove it, that, but that humans have uh, a closer relationship with herbivores in terms of sleep than with carnivores and omnivores. So, you know, if you look at these amounts of sleep, you don't see any of the relationships that you might expect, that, that animals that have a uh, high bi- brain-body weight ratio don't have a high amount of sleep, uh, there's no particular relationship between the amount of sleep and the brain-body weight ratio. You have some like the, 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 the baboon and the guinea pig have exactly the same parameters of REM and non-REM sleep. Um, so so it, it's hard to relate that to cognition or uh, brain-body weight ratio. And at the other extreme, 
the animal that sleeps the most is the, the, the little brown bat. And uh, why should they sleep that much? Do they have any, uh, you know, great cog- cognitive abilities or lifespan abilities? Uh, it, it's hard to explain it that way. But if you look at their diet, it explains itself. They're specialized for eating moths and insects. The insects are only available for about four hours a day. And so that's when they're active. And, and you know, that, like the explanation for the elephant, that provides a, a, a pretty obvious explanation of why they've evolved to do that. If they were you know, th- th- there is this idea that you're wasting time when you're asleep, which humans certainly sense more than other animals, I think, because we always have things to do. We think, well, you know, if I, if I could sleep less, I could get more done. You know, I could, uh, you know, I could edit more articles or I could uh, have more fun. I go to more parties, etc. And why is this being imposed on us? But I don't think it's so much imposed on us is it's an adaptation. And... Uh, you know, that, that reproduction and survival of the species is dependent not just on activity. It's not as if you were active for 24 hours a day, you would have more kids and they would be more healthy. Uh, you would be depleting resources and, uh, you know, it would be much more difficult to maintain. But the real determinant of survival in, in, in species is energy management. You've got to get the energy by eating and you want to save the energy when you don't need to be eating. And body metabolism goes way down when you sleep. And in particular, brain metabolism goes, goes way down. So, you know, people say, well, why couldn't you just be quietly lying there and resting? Why do you have to be asleep and be so vulnerable? Well, you know, y- y- you could do that, but you save more energy when, when the brain is, uh, metabolically reduced, which is what uh, s- sleep is. And, you know, the, the energy is what, what drives everything. So uh, you, you, you're not wasting time when you're asleep. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's, it's very adaptive to be inactive. Nobody makes the same statement about hibernation. Everybody understo- understands that hibernation is beneficial because in the winter in, in many species and in the summer in others, something called estivation, which is the same sort of thing. Uh, if you were active, you wouldn't be able to get uh, the, the, the food that you need and you would be expending all this energy. So, you know, acquiring and expending energy are the major determinants of species survival. And sleep is a part of doing this, that if you don't need to be awake to eat, from, from an evolutionary standpoint, you should be minimizing energy consumption. And most species have safe sleeping sites that allow you to do that without really risking much. And animals that don't have safe sleeping sites do not sleep very much, do not sleep very deeply. You know, I like to say, if giraffes sleep like humans, there would be no giraffes because they're living in a, in a hostile environment. And, you know, they're they're light sleepers and, and, or some animals sleep, uh, uh, sort of one member of the group stays awake and others sleep, depending on what's, what's adaptive. But, uh, you know, just in general, sleep is not a maladaptive state. And it's not like animals 
are going to be more evolutionarily successful if they're active 24 hours a day. That just makes no sense when you look at it from an energetic standpoint. You have presented some hypotheses in your review regarding the functions of REM and non-REM sleep. Please, can you elaborate on these hypotheses? Well, so REM sleep was discovered uh, by Asterinsky and Kleitman in the 1950s. Um, and it was a very exciting discovery to, to find that there are two different kinds of sleep. And Tement, in particular, used to emphasize that you know, dreaming occurs in REM sleep, and indeed it does. But what we now know is dreaming also occurs in non-REM sleep. That maybe more vivid dreams in REM sleep, but uh, dreaming can occur right after you go to sleep, long before you get to the first REM sleep period. So that's that's not quite true. Um, but then again, that led to this idea that uh, REM sleep was important for cognition, uh, and and uh, you know that that's that's where you analyze what's happened during the day and uh, regulate your emotions and all these sorts of things. All all of this implying that there was something unique about uh, human sleep and about human REM, REM sleep amounts. And this was reinforced by some early work that studied uh, an Australian mammal called the echidna. And this is, uh, there, there, there's a, a category of mammals that lay eggs. And these are closely related to the animals that are believed to be the, the uh, ancestors of all uh, mammalian species. But they're only really uh, two or three of these species left, egg-laying mammals. And the, the echidna was the first one that was examined. And the, the people who examined that, Truett uh, Allison was the leader author on that, didn't see the EEG, that is the cortical signs of REM sleep. Uh, and so they concluded uh, that the echidna doesn't, doesn't have... REM sleep. And this kind of fit with this, this idea that REM sleep is the more advanced kind of sleep. And, you know, uh, we have REM sleep because we have such active cognition and uh, imagination and, and all that. Uh, and so I, I had the opportunity to examine this animal again. And uh, Allison was doing a cortical recording with EEG. Uh, we, we had a technique where we could record brainstem activity because the brainstem is, is what generates REM sleep. That's been shown quite unequivocally by a man named Juvet in France uh, who, who showed that you could actually remove the rest of the brain and you would still see REM sleep in the brainstem, whereas you wouldn't see REM sleep in the rest of the brain if you severed the connection. So, you know, the, the, the term is necessary and sufficient. You can see REM sleep in the isolated brainstem, and you can't see REM sleep in the intact brain with small damage to this critical region in the, in the brainstem. Uh, so I uh, did this study in Australia, re recording from the brainstem to see what was happening uh, in these animals. Presumably, if there's no REM sleep, you wouldn't see this activation that occurs in the brainstem. And what I saw was actually the reverse. The brainstem activity is showing something that looks very much like REM sleep. Uh, and, and a lot of it, actually. Uh, 
Um, and, and so then there's one, one other egg-laying mammal, monotree mammal, who's uh, available for research, or at least was available for research, and that's the platypus. And so I did a study in the platypus, uh, and in this case, uh, we were able to videotape the animal in REM sleep, and it has quite obvious REM sleep. And not only does it have REM sleep, but it has more REM sleep than any other mammal. So it's not as though REM sleep is a new state. It seems very much like REM sleep may be the oldest sleep state because this animal has so much of it. And I, I was able to videotape a, a platypus in REM sleep, which is part of this publication in Lancet Neurology, the, the video images. Uh, and you can see it's absolutely unequivocal that it's shaking its head, it's moving its eyes, it's, it's moving its jaw, and it's, uh, it's a REM sleep state, but the EEG isn't always activated the way it is in our REM sleep. And that's also true in newborn humans, and most newborn mammals don't have this EEG thing. So the, 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 uh, the, the core aspect of REM sleep is there, but just not the EEG type. And that, that led me to something that I, I just realized myself in writing this Lancet article. Um, one, one interesting aspect of monotremes is that they have very low body temperature. So centigrade, it's about 31 degrees whereas in humans it's 37 degrees. That's a pretty substantial difference. And in general, all of the monotremes have this low body temperature. Marsupials, animals that have pouches, uh, have a somewhat higher body temperature. Placental mammals have, like us, have a still higher body temperature. And birds, which also have a uh, our homeotherms, that is, regulate the body temperature, have the highest body temperature. And so if you plot out the amount for each group of mammals and you plot out the amount of REM sleep, there is a, for me, it was a jaw-dropping realization when I did this plot to see that there's a completely inverse relationship between body temperature and amount of REM sleep. So birds which have the highest body temperature have the lowest amount of REM sleep, then comes placentals, then comes uh, marsupials, and then come, comes monotremes, which have the largest amount of REM sleep. So it seems that REM sleep has something to do with body temperature. And what I suggest, and I think, you know, we, we need to do further work, is, is that uh, th there may be, uh, th it may well be that the earliest uh, sleep, in order to, for an animal to be able to to defend itself, you need the maximal brain activation. Uh, and, and so you can't have the body temperature drop any lower in monotremes because it's already very low, which may be some physiological limit for having a, a conscious brain. And so they have this constant activity in the brainstem during sleep, which is REM sleep. And uh, as as the body temperature goes up, as you get to birds, which have very high uh, body temperature and a high metabolism because they're linked, they don't really need this uh, REM sleep to be ver very long. Uh, 
uh, and to, to maintain their ability to awaken. So, you know, the, the obvious detriment of sleep is that you are somewhat defenseless. So you don't want to be uh, in hibernation. So, you know, I spoke to some of my colleagues that do hibernation work, and like if you have a ground squirrel that's hibernating and you're doing this in a lab, you can pick it up and it takes like an hour before it's responsive. They can get away with that because they're doing this underground and, uh, you know, they're very hard to locate. You have to save the energy and that is beneficial, but you need to have a safe sleeping place. So all of these variables figure in, the environmental variables and the temperature variables. But I think what's new is how profound the relationship between temperature and REM sleep is, such that lower body temperature mammals as a group have the highest amount of REM sleep and, you know, uh, high, high body temperature have the lowest amount of REM sleep. Could you expand on some of the sleep pathologies that are mentioned in your review and highlight any important considerations? Well, there, there are several pathologies of sleep. Uh, probably the best known one, although not the most common, is insomnia, which I guess I've already discussed in terms of you know, the role of environmental variables or the possible role that needs to be tested. Um, but narcolepsy is, is a d- disease not just of being sleepy all the time. There's a more general term uh, for, for that, you know, hypersomnia. Uh, but actually, the most common kind of hypersomnia is uh, narcolepsy. But what makes for the definition of narcolepsy is that you have this symptom called cataplexy, which is a loss of muscle tone occurring in waking, uh, typically during uh, positive emotions, such as the, the, the most obvious one being laughter. Uh, when, when a, a narcoleptic laughs, uh, they, they, get, they get physically weak and in some cases may actually fall down. Uh, so this seemed very mysterious. And for a long time, there was a, certainly a group of people who thought this is a psychosomatic condition. It's some kind of hysteria. Uh, but, but starting around 2000, there was a group in Japan that was investigating this, this peptide that they called orexin, and that another group which made the same discovery at the same time called hypocretin. They're the same substance with two names. Uh, and they were trying to see uh, <laughs> what caused obesity, which is, of course, is a huge clinical problem. And so they were looking for uh, peptides that were produced in the hypothalamus, which we know has something to do with weight regulation, uh, but, but uh, not in the cerebellum, which we know is a motor uh, structure. And this is a group uh, led by Mahashi Yanagasawa. Uh, and they discovered this, this peptide. They called it orexin because they thought it was related to, f- to food intake. In fact, if you uh, eliminate this peptide, animals don't get anorexic, which would be the straightforward uh, prediction. Uh, they tend to be obese, actually. Uh, but what they discovered is, you know, so they, they, they w- were wondering, well, since they're not getting anorexic, maybe there's something unusual about the eating, so let's look at that. So they were videotaping these mice, and they, they discovered, well, 
sometimes they're running around and they just kind of roll over. Are they having seizures, which is, you know, would not be too surprising uh, when you manipulate a gene, you, you might be developing epilepsy. And so they collaborated with a sleep group now because they also, it also occurred to them that maybe this is a sleep attack of some sort. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. That was, that was cataplexy. And so uh, I was asked to comment on this paper when it came out. And, and the group at Stanford was also working on this. Uh, and we eventually, through, through, through different paths, looked at human narcoleptic brains. I had a few in the lab because I had prior ideas about what might cause narcolepsy that I used these brains to test and that my ideas were wrong, but I I kept the brains. And uh, when this came out, I looked for hypocretin neurons to see if there's anything abnormal about them. And it turned out they were gone. They were 90% gone. So this is really... Uh, been the big development in, in during my career, uh, and I think throughout sleep research, that we now have a very, very specific cause of narcolepsy, which is the loss of these neurons. And the obvious uh, solution or treatment might be to give the peptide that, that's in these neurons uh, to see if we can reverse uh, the sleepiness of narcolepsy. And in fact, we did a collaboration with a, a, a group on the East Coast of the United States where we, we uh, uh, gave uh, hypocretin, is what I call it, to, to monkeys through a nasal route, you know, just kind of spraying it in front of them so they inhale it. And it does indeed make them more alert. And now there are uh, various hypocretin agonists uh, being, being developed, and they, they seem to be effective. Now, whether they're better than other stimulants we have, uh, we don't know, because it's hard to uh, duplicate what a neuron does, which is it has particular connections and it releases things in a particular pattern on particular cell groups. So it's, it's not going to be an ideal solution. But we do understand pretty well now what causes narcolepsy. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a sort of a spectacular example of the value of basic research that these geneticists, which weren't at all interested in sleep, uh, and now have a huge sleep lab to investigate all aspects of sleep in Japan. Uh, they were in, in Texas for a while, and they, they moved to Japan. So, um, you know, so, so you asked me about other sleep disorders. Of course, insomnia is the main one. We don't know what the cause is, but I think our, our work in uh, uh, hunter-gatherers suggests that some of it may be the controlled environment that we live in. We live in an incredibly artificial environment. And, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, you, you can't just say, you know, if you live in Los Angeles, turn off the air conditioning, open the, open the windows, you know, because like right now, it's 105 degrees outside. I'll move somewhere else. Well, I'll move to West Los Angeles, which weather is better. But, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're living in places we couldn't live. Uh, but but this is the penalty we're paying, and maybe if we modulate our our temperature cycle and our light cycle in a more normal way, we might have an approach to insomnia. The other uh, uh, sleep pathologies uh, that, that that were mentioned were um, REM behavior disorder, which is quite common uh, in in the elderly. Uh, 
particularly elderly men, when they go into REM sleep, they don't have the motor inhibition that prevents them from acting out their dreams. So they indeed act out their dreams. And uh, very often you have stories about some, some uh, you know, harmless old guy who started choking his wife in the middle of the night or, or, or just punching because he was having some dream that he was being attacked. And that was the, the, near, the nearest uh, flesh around. Um, and this is, this is a disorder of uh, REM sleep motor control because one of the unique things that happens during REM sleep is that your, your motor neurons are paralyzed, they're hyperpolarized, and there's a system that causes this involving monoamines and, and acetylcholine. Uh, and so we sort of understand what's going on, and there is a treatment with this drug called clonazepam that's fairly effective. But people who have REM behavior disorder, unfortunately, seem to almost invariably progress to Parkinson's disease. And so the REM behavior disorder comes first. And a lot of people now are working on testing uh, possible treatments that might prevent the progression to Parkinson's disease because we have this REM behavior disorder can occur decades before Parkinson's disease. So if we have the right treatment, we might be able to prevent Parkinson's disease. But unfortunately, so far, we, we don't have a treatment that works. And then there's another, I don't know if we're running out of time, but there's another uh, treatment called, uh, another disorder called restless leg syndrome, where, where uh, the typically uh, people with the syndrome find it very hard to sit still for long periods of time. You know, they don't like to go see a movie at the movie theater because they, they're, they're going to get this itching in their legs that can only be uh, uh, soothed by walking around. And then when they go to sleep, very often they will have this periodic movement during sleep where their legs will twitch, you know, and it can be like every 15 seconds their legs will twitch. And we know something about that. We know that uh, sometimes uh, iron supplements can prevent it because there's some neuronal groups that we think that are involved in the brainstem uh, that are affected by iron deficiency and the iron uh, treatment can be sufficient to reverse the problem. Uh, also, dopamine agonists are effective. So this is another, you know, very very common sleep disorder that we don't have a perfect treatment for, but we have uh, some treatments for. Can you tell us what you think will happen next in sleep research? How will your current research fit into this? Well, so I think actually we've already touched on this, that the, you know, it is a huge problem for, uh, insomnia is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, <laughs> an interesting epidemiological finding is that people with insomnia do not have shorter lifespan. But people who, whose insomnia is treated with sleeping pills do have a shorter lifespan. So we need to deal with insomnia in ways that don't involve uh, sleeping pills. Um, and, and, you know, I, there's no minimizing uh, the effects of insomnia. It, it disrupts daytime activity and... and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible for people who have it, but, but sleeping pills are not the way to treat it. And perhaps 
uh, recreating a more natural environment would be effective. That would require some, some work to do. But there already is clinical advice that's, that's just by trial and error, and, and people understand this themselves. At night, the temperature goes down almost everywhere on Earth. Uh, and uh, if you are living in a thermoregulated environment, that is with, with heaters, heaters uh, uh, it's easy to leave the temperature at the set point 24 hours a day. So, you, so you're always at, at uh, you know, uh, essentially room temperature. But one way of recreating the natural environment is to reduce temperature at night. Perhaps what we need to do and, and what is increasingly practical to do with, uh, you know, automated thermostats is to actually recreate what happens under natural conditions, which is temperature starts falling at sunset and goes down throughout the night and hits the bottom at sunrise. And that's when the hunter-gatherers wake up. And maybe we should do this ourselves. And we need systematic studies of that to see uh, how that works. But uh, it's not just reducing the temperature. It's having the temperature fall throughout the night. And then, you know, if, if you've ever gone camping, uh, when you wake up, you're freezing cold. And indeed, that is something you see in the hunter-gatherers. So they vasoconstrict. So we measured finger temperature in the hunter-gatherers. And when they awake, they're, they're, they vasoconstrict in their hands so that their finger temperature drops to the lowest point of the day so they can start warming the body. Now, this may not be the most pleasant way to wake up, but this is the way humans w- woke up before we got into these thermoneutral environments. And maybe that is something that we should uh, do uh, to treat insomnia. Now, the, 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 one, the one caution here is maybe it's too late. Maybe you need to be reared under this environment. And, and uh, you know, if, if you're already an adult, you, you might not benefit as much. Or, you know, we need maybe to back up, back off from some of the perfect air conditioning that we all have access to. At least, at least in the United States, I'm hearing, you know, that there, there's a heat wave in, in, in Britain, but no, not many people have air conditioning. I can tell you there's nobody in my neighborhood that doesn't have air conditioning. There's a million people living in the San Fernando Valley, and no one in their right mind has, does not have air conditioning unless their air conditioning broke down, because you wouldn't live there under these conditions. It, it got up to, uh, I don't know, 119 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know whether that's 43 degrees or something like that uh, a, f- a few years ago, almost as hot as in Death Valley a couple of years ago. And this year it'll probably get just as bad. So, you know, you, you, can't, you can't just open the windows and say that's going to be healthy. But maybe simulating a natural uh, temperature cycle might be beneficial. Maybe it would be beneficial uh, throughout lifespan. But uh, People are welcome to take this idea and run with it because it's a, it's a big project to do and you, you would have to do it at, at different ages and different temperature parameters. But, but certainly the, the standard clinical advice of lowering temperature at night fits with what we've seen with hunter-gatherers. Jerry, this has been enlightening. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. You can read more about this topic on thelancet.com. Thank you to Jerry and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. 
Remember, you can subscribe to The Lancet Neurology in conversation with wherever you usually get your podcasts.